The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, now I'd like to introduce our speaker for this evening, uh, Pastor Paul Martin. Paul is the senior pastor at Grace Fellowship Church here in the northwest of the city. Uh, I first met Paul many years ago now, and uh, I've always been blessed by his preaching ministry. Uh, Paul is a man of a warm heart and, uh, and strong convictions. I'm sure you'll be delighted to hear him. I see some faces here from that church, and so I don't need to introduce him to you on that account. But uh, for those of you who haven't heard Paul, you're in for a treat. Paul is also a member of the Toronto Gospel Alliance. It's a group of churches that are working together for some of the same purposes I articulated uh, related to the Summer Fellowship. It's to present a cohesive gospel on certain fundamental principles, shared principles, uh, banding together, and among other things, we've put on for the last two Easter's a very large service in the city of Toronto, and that will be the case this coming April as well. So without further ado, uh, Pastor Paul. Well, good evening. It is great to be with you again. I bring you greetings from Grace Fellowship Church up in Rexdale. We exist, and we are glad you do as well. It's great to be in this part of the city, and great to see all of you. So thankful for what the Lord is doing in the city of Toronto. It's great to be with my friend Joe here at Westminster Chapel. We um, spend time together as Toronto Gospel Alliance pastors and uh, these are some of my dearest friends in the ministry and brothers that I love dearly. So uh, for those of you who are part of Westminster Chapel, thank you for freeing your pastor up to be a part of that group of men. And thank you as well for your participation in things like the Good Friday service. Uh, just a joy to be with the saints of God throughout the city. Well, let me uh, have you, since we're doing a series on the Minor Prophets, I think a uh, fair warning is you're going to want to start looking for Micah. So uh, you can open your Bibles to Micah, and as if you don't know where that is, there's no shame. There's a table of contents in the Bible in front of you, and just look up for Micah. And as you do that, let me try and give you something of the setting of this particular passage we're going to look at today. I don't know if you've ever felt... like God is never pleased with you. Like you just can't do enough. Like no matter how hard you try, it seems like the Lord always demands more. No matter how well you do, it appears His expectations are higher. And Christianity to you is something like the Olympics. I, don't, I think if I made it to the Olympics, which would... <laughs> yeah, okay, stop laughing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain if I got to the Olympics, I would be one of the DNFs. That has to be the saddest thing on a scoreboard. Some poor guy labors for four years to get to the Olympics, and then he DQs or DNFs, did not finish. Something happens, he's disqualified from the race. It's over, no medal for you, no hero's welcome when you get home. I think sometimes some of us think that our Christianity is a little bit like that. And no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I do, it seems like it's never quite enough. 
Now, maybe there's this uneasy message running in the back of your mind all the time. You know, God doesn't really accept me. Or maybe you feel pressured from the people around you. If you were really a good Christian, you would do more. Or maybe you simply look at your life. If you have a spouse, you're trying to love your spouse. If you have children, you're trying to raise your children. If you've got a job, you're trying to be a Christian at the workplace. If you're in a church, you're a member of your church, and then you're trying to serve, and you're trying to do your ministry, and you think, surely that's enough. That's, that's enough, isn't it? And perhaps, perhaps, once in a while, you begin to feel like God himself is something of a burden to you, a weight. Now, if you open your Bible to Micah chapter 6, I want to read this passage for you and then describe some ways as we begin to look at it in which it is relevant to us and in some ways it is not so relevant to us. So Micah chapter 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you know your Bible, you will know that it is divided in two. There is an Old Testament and a New Testament. We're in the Old Testament, the Latin word for covenant. And there are some ways in which this portion of our Bible is relevant to us, and perhaps some ways it's not relevant in the ways we might think it is. So let me begin with ways in which this passage is very relevant to us. In fact, the whole book of Micah. First of all, Micah is writing to a nation and to the cities, the leading cities of that nation, Israel. And at that time, he is writing when there is massive political turbulence. Say, so, hey, we can relate to political turbulence. It is also a time when these cities are economically prosperous. There is a rising wealthy middle to upper class. 
And his writings, even though he's not from these cities, he writes as one who uh, sort of travels in from an outlying town and brings his prophetic word to the cities over about a probably 25-year period. And and these things are just all collected, likely at his death, and we, we get the book of Micah. But these are interrelated, different prophecies that he makes over a long period of time. And, and he writes to an, an, an urban, with an urban-focused feel. In other words, he's writing to the city. And, and so there's a sense where we can relate to some of that. We know what it is to live in political turbulence. Uh, we know what it is to, to be economically prosperous in the scope of the world. We know what it is to be living in an urban center. And so there are, are things in Micah that, that just resonate with us in that way. However, Micah makes his prophecy to a group of people, the nation of Israel, with whom God is in covenant. And that's very, very important to notice. This is more than just a contract, but rather it's an agreement. Typically, covenants were agreements that were entered into when a strong emperor captures another city, or at least stands outside their gates and says, I will destroy you unless you sign this covenant. And the covenant was an agreement. And you would basically say, we will do X, Y, and Z, or else we agree you will come and wreck us, destroy us, flatten us, and take us all away as slaves. Thank you. So in the, in the broader culture, covenant wasn't necessarily a, a good thing in that sense. It, and yet God redeems this idea of covenant, and he brings it into his relationship with Israel. And he says, I have rescued you, Israel. I've saved you, and I've brought you into covenant. Not in the same way that you know the mob using extortion shows up at the dry cleaners one day and says, oh, guess what? Uh, we're in a covenant, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, we're not going to wreck your place as long as you give us 50% of the, you know, it's, it's not that. But this is God, the benevolent dictator, the truly good God, acting in grace, rescuing his people, bringing them out of slavery, and then entering into an agreement with them, whereby he makes promises to them. Now this covenant is called the Old Covenant because there is a New Covenant. And the Old Covenant, many, many things we could say about it, but a couple important things when we, before we look at Micah. This Old Covenant was made with a nation, not an individual. It's made with the people of Israel. And as we learn, as we read our Bibles, not all Israel was really Israel. So there, there is a sense that, that God makes this promise with a mixed multitude, those believing on him, those not. That's important to remember. It's also important to remember that the, the blessings that God promises to come with this covenant are based on obedience. In other words, the perks to the covenant are conditional which means if life starts going really, really, really bad, likely you're not keeping your part of the bargain. The one way God demonstrates that you are not keeping the covenant is he brings tragedy, difficulty, uh, political disaster, you're called off into captivity, whatever it is, this is showing you that you're not keeping the covenant. That's the old covenant. But the new covenant comes along in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it's called a better covenant, a covenant that makes the first covenant obsolete. It replaces it in that sense, and it is not made with the nation, but it is made with the individual through Jesus Christ. 
The blessings and the rewards of that covenant are conditioned on the obedience of one, and it is the obedience of Jesus. So all the promises of the covenant are yes and amen and true for the people of God because of the obedience of Christ, because of what Jesus has done. And that distinction between old and new means when when we are living in the new covenant and we go walking back into the old covenant, there's not a flat line between the two. We cannot read Micah 6 in a way that that takes its stipulations flatly and without qualification right into the new covenant because Christ has come and that epic changing death and resurrection changes everything. So, the warnings and the promises that are made to a city are not made to a city like Toronto. God has not entered into covenant with Canada. He has not entered into covenant with Toronto. We need God's word to Christians in the city, to those who are in Christ, not in Jerusalem. So we can't expect God to judge Toronto or judge New York City or judge Los Angeles or Cairo or anywhere else for their breach of the covenant because he's not entered into covenant with them. There's no national covenant with people today. Precisely because God is going to work with individuals as opposed to nations in the way that he worked with Israel. Now, you say, why are you saying all that? Because when we come into Micah, God speaks, I believe, to the Christians in Toronto. He speaks to the Christians in this urban center. He speaks to those with whom he has already entered into covenant those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he's doing in Micah chapter 6. He's now speaking to you and me, and he's saying, I'm summoning you to court. When I was a boy, there was a knock at the door one day, and I was home alone, and two police officers were there, and they said, is so-and-so here? And he wasn't there. And they handed me a summons, and they said, you've got to make sure he gets this. I have never been so scared in my life as a six-year-old, seven-year-old boy looking at two big police officers giving me a piece of paper. I thought the world was coming to an end. If you've been summoned, maybe you know that experience. But here is God, and he is summoning the Christians of Toronto to himself. And he's saying, I am bringing you now to family court. Now, family court is different. Because his intention here is not to throw you into prison, Christian. His intention here is to call you back. And to bring you back, to restore you in fellowship. By the way, Roger great songs, because all those songs, if we were thinking about what we were singing, we're speaking what this text is saying. So, first of all, this passage divides into three parts, the prosecution, then the defense, and then the judgment. Very easy to follow along, but you need to see it in its context to understand the heart of it there in verse 8. But we're going to begin in verse 1 with the prosecution. God appoints a crown attorney. Uh, He directs Micah to be his prosecuting crown attorney. He says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, he says to Micah, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Why the mountains and the hills? Because the mountains and the hills were there when God made that old covenant. And God said, I make this covenant before, before I testify to this before the seas and before the earth. Things that last longer than you are my witness to what I have said in this covenant. So now he's calling witnesses. He says, mountains, 
It's time for you to be a witness to the things that I have already said to my people. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. So now Micah begins to speak in verse 2. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Formal charges are laid. Micah says, God has an indictment against who? His people. He's bringing charges against those with whom he is in covenant. And he calls the attention of his witnesses, and he says, Yahweh says, I'm bringing this indictment, and I am, I am now going to contend with my people. I don't know about you, but I hope that God never says, Paul, I'm going to contend with you now. Now, fittingly, God's first witness is himself. Verse 3. In this sense, if you want to play out the courtroom drama, it's, it's God appoints Micah and then says to Micah, call me first. <laughs> and, and here comes God. Verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. How have I wearied you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? How have I worn you out? How have I been a burden to you? God, by his question, is is bringing the indictment. He says, you are looking at me as wearisome. You are looking at me as tiresome. You are looking at me as a burden. My commands, my expectations, me. You are tired of me. You are tired of your faith. You're tired of your Christianity. You are bored with God. And the infinitely good and glorious God demands proof for why they should feel this way. Answer me, he says. It draws our mind back to the book of Job. If you turn back there, keep a spot there in Micah. If you turn back to Job for a moment. Chapter 42. Job, as he is worn down by his trials and the false accusations of some not-so-good friends began to think through the scope of the book that God owed him an answer, an explanation. If only he would appear to me and I could make my case. Of course, God does appear to him. And at the end of that appearance, in chapter 42, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Then he quotes God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Then he goes back to himself. Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He quotes God again. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Then Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You don't want to have God look at you and say, answer me. Job was the most righteous man, a godly man. And yet when God came to him and said, answer me, Job, Job says, I repent, I close my mouth, I throw dust and ashes on my, you've taken away my family, you've taken away my wealth, you've caused me to suffer physically, but you are good and you are holy and you know what's right and you know what's true. I got nothing to say. 
the two words you never want to hear from God are, answer me. Explain yourself to me. And yet the two words you will hear in the day of judgment are exactly those if you're not in Christ. Now this this boredom with God that he charges the people with is really the only charge that he brings. And then he shifts gears on them to begin to display to them what is real. And I often think when I'm talking with people who are in great trials, sometimes the, the best question you can ask yourself is this. What is real? What is true? If you're an anxious person, it's great just to stop and say, okay, what is true? God is sovereign and God is good. Those things are true. I can hold on to those things. And so God begins to say to the people, here's what's true. That's very interesting how he does it. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. In the original, that that wearied you and brought you up. They rhyme. They're just kind of a poetic device. And so it's as if Yahweh is saying, I've not let you down. (laughs) On the contrary, I've brought you up. And then he gives his evidence. Four acts of his free, unmerited grace. First of all, I purchased you. Verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I purchased you. I took you up from the mud pits of Egypt to the prosperity of the promised land, and I bought you. I made you mine. I paid the price. You are mine. I purchased you. Secondly, I have provided for you. I, the under, again, verse 4, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I gave you Moses, who was your lawgiver and director. I gave you Aaron, who could make atonement for you before me. And I gave you Miriam to lead you in praise. I provided for you. I didn't just take you out of Egypt and dump you in the wilderness. I provided for you. So I have purchased you, I have provided for you, and I have protected you, verse 5. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Now, if you know the story, it's a great story, because Balaam had a donkey who talked. And part of the reason the donkey was talking is because God was not permitting Balaam, who was kind of a four-hire bad prophet... And, and, and Balak, the king of, of, Beor, of Moab, rather, doesn't want Israel becoming his next-door neighbor, so he says, I'll give you lots of money if you'll come and curse these people, and, and hopefully that will scare them away. Something like that. And of course, when he goes to speak, nothing but blessing comes out of his mind. And so God is saying by this, look at how I protected you. You had enemies on your right hand, enemies on your left hand, enemies before you, enemies behind you, and yet I protected you. I intervened, and I put my blessing in the mouth of the bad prophet. But not only that, I have prospered you. Verse 5 again, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal? What did happen? Well, on the east side of the Jordan River is Shittim. And on the west side is Gilgal. And God, after the 40 years of wandering, took his people, assembled them on the Jordan, and then said to Joshua, go through the waters, 
from Shittim to Gilgal into the promised land. Conquer and take what I promised long, long ago. God prospered his people. He brought them all the way to the promised land. Why does God say this? He says this, that you may know, the end of verse 5, the saving acts of the Lord. That you might remember and know the saving acts of the Lord, of Yahweh, of your covenant God, and recall how perfectly He has kept the covenant with you. Literally, He says that you might remember my righteous acts. Those actions that are in keeping, in parallel with, that belong with the covenant. I kept my side of the bargain. But did you notice these three little words that repeated themselves in verse 3 and verse 5? Oh, my people. God here is in family court. He's not trying to drive them away. He's trying to bring them back. And He says, oh, my people. If you are a Christian, if you are a person who in this lifetime has turned away from your self-confidence, self-reliance, from other false deities and false gods, and you have put all of your confidence in Jesus Christ alone, if that's who you are, then God looks at you tonight and He says, you are mine. Now that's encouraging to me. You are mine. You are my people. And it's as if he looks to the Christians in Toronto and he says, consider all that I have done for you in Jesus, who is the true exodus. The one who brings us out of our slavery and the one who brings us finally into the true promised land. I purchased you, he says. You were enslaved to sin. You were stuck in the mud pits of self and the world. But I sent my son, Jesus Christ, into the world to receive sin's punishment for you and to set you free. Not only did I purchase you, I have provided for you. I've given you local churches, faithful pastors and elders and lay leaders to help guide you and instruct you and shepherd you and lead you along. I protect you. I will sovereignly intervene, protecting you from that role lion, the devil who prowls about seeking whom he might devour. I will keep you until the end and I will prosper you because I am he who began a good work in you and I will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And so God looks to Christians in Toronto and he says, how can you then grow tired and weary of me? What that means is if you've grown tired with God, it's because you've lost sight of of the Gospel. Do you see that? If you have grown weary with God, it's because you've lost focus on the Gospel. If you have grown to to think that God is a burden on your life, it's because you've forgotten what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. If if God's commands are are burdensome, it's because your your self-analysis is broken. If you've grown weary walking with the Savior, it's because you've forgotten how to walk in the good of His Gospel and in the good of His salvation. And if that's you tonight, then you will likely respond the way Israel responded when they were brought into family court. We move to part two. That's the prosecution. Prosecution rests its case. But... As in court, the accused has opportunity to make defense. And so Israel makes their defense. 
When I was growing up, my mom had uh, a little sticker on her bulletin board. It was my favorite thing. I think it was a button that was sort of stuck permanently on the bulletin board in the kitchen. And it was about this big, had a red circle with a line through it. And then there was a word. The word was whining. No whining. I don't know, I, maybe I got that from my mom, I don't know, but I hear whiny little people, like little people that are whining, and I'm kind of like, oh. And then you get about big people that are whining, that's ten times worse. I am so I think, I'm quite confident actually, that the way we're to read this is with a bit of a whine. What happens here is Israel looks to God and it's as if they're throwing up their hands and they're saying, look, <laughs> what more do you want from me? And, and, and he, he escalates in his response. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn? You see how he, did, he builds to the ludicrous and with hyperbole he's saying, look, I, I, pff, what? Is it more expression? Is that what you need? I have to come and bow myself before you? Is it more sacrifice? The burnt offering is, that's, that's a big sacrifice because you, you burn everything. You don't get anything back. Many of the other offerings, you know, you take some of the meat home and you have a dinner. But this, you just, you burn the whole thing. You lose it all. A yearling, a calf a year old, am I going to offer? You know, I had to feed that thing. For, you know, have you seen how much a calf eats in its first year? I had to feed that thing for a whole year. Is that, okay, so I got to bring the most expensive offering. Is that what you want, God? More sacrifice? More expression? More quantity? Is that going to do it? Does it have to be thousands of rams? One ram isn't enough? Does it have to be 10,000 rivers of oil for my offering? Some some astronomical, impossible amount? What do you want? Is it more faith? Do I have to take my son like Abraham and offer him up to you? Is that going to please you? Ever feel that way towards the Lord? More time? More of my money? More, more of my service? i got to do more things at church? Aren't you happy with what I'm giving already? Uh, do you want more, 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 more? That's their defense. And the defense rests. And then comes the judgment. Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He's already told you. Go back in your Bible for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 10. God is giving the law. You'll see much of the same language right here. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning around verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good? 
Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear he is your praise. He is your God who has done this, done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. God looks in judgment and speaks as the judge to the nation Israel, and he says, this is my judgment. I have already told you, O man, O Adam, O man in the singular and man in the dust, feeble, feeble man, I have already told you, little man, what is good and what is required. You know what what it boils down to? Kind of the New Testament idea of be who you are in Christ. Live like people who have been saved. Live like people who have been converted. Live like people who've been rescued out of slavery. Live like people who've been born again. These these things that he describes here are not hoops to jump through in order to get saved or in order to stay saved. They are a description of a person already saved. God is already in covenant with these people, and now he's simply reminding them, and he's saying, this is what it means to be a a follower of God. What are these things? Three of them. First of all, do justice. I want to suggest to you that primarily, running through all three, is the idea of be like God. Did you notice that in Deuteronomy 10? How God is saying, I take care of the sojourner, you take care of the sojourner. I exercise love towards you, you exercise love toward one another. What's he doing? He's saying, be like me. Be like me. And that's really what God is saying here. He's saying, be like me. Do justice. Treat people fairly. Treat people uprightly. Treat people honestly. I don't believe this is a call for social justice on the grand scale, but rather on the personal level. He says, oh man. And so, Christian employer, are you fair? Are you honest? Are you upright? Christian husband, are you honest? Are are you the same person, Christian, regardless of who you're with? Or are you trying to live like a chameleon? I'm one person here and I'm another person there. God looks upon that with a great frown and says, what I desire from you is to live doing justice. But not only to do justice, but to love kindness. I'm not a Bible translator, but sometimes I wish I was because if I did the Paul Martin translation of the Bible... I would take every occurrence of this particular word and instead of translating it, I would transliterate it. Do you know the difference? So there's a Greek word, baptizo. If you translate it, it's immerse. 
if you transliterate it, it's baptize. It sounds like the Greek word baptizo. Well, I would take this Hebrew word chesed, and I would just force it into our English Bibles, because there is no English equivalent. In all your different versions of the English translations, you'll find loving kindness, faithful love, love, mercy. The ESV generally uses steadfast love, and they didn't hear, and I think I know why, and I wish they had. I'm just longing for an English Bible translation that takes every occurrence of that particular word and and makes it stand out in some way so that you could see, because this is one of God's primary attributes, This is how God reveals himself to the people. I am a God of chesed. I am a God of steadfast love. I am a God who, my very nature, motivated by my love, is to keep the promises that I make. See, that doesn't translate very easily. That's kind of a long thing to put for one word in every occurrence. But that's, if you want to kind of sum up the the whole extent of God, it's this promise-keeping character of God that is motivated out of love. So steadfast love is a a good translation. And what he says here is love, steadfast love. Love, hased. Love, faithful promise keeping. Love, loyalty. Love being like your Savior who keeps his promises. Be loyal like David was loyal to Jonathan's offspring. Be loyal and do good to all. That's what he's saying. He's saying be like me. Love, kindness. Love, steadfast love. And then thirdly, walk humbly with your God. You know, of course, that that word walk isn't meaning literally to walk. It's it's speaking metaphorically about the journey of your life. And he says, in the journey of your life, do you notice what he said there? With your God, alongside Your God, the God which you possess by relationship through Jesus Christ. Walk along with your God, how? Humbly. The word might be translated carefully, circumspectly. It is the idea, the reason we can use humbly there, it's the idea of humbly giving God first place in everything. Being, being careful to give God first place in everything. In my values, in my planning, in my family life, in my job, in what I think about. It is to walk in love and delight in God. So, God looks to the Christians of Toronto and He brings them into family court and He makes His accusation known and He says, why have you grown weary with Me when I have rescued you through the greater exodus which I accomplished through My Son, Jesus Christ? And we make our feeble, pathetic excuses saying, trying to turn the tables and somehow say, the problem is with you, God. The problem's not with Me. And then we hear God's judgment, which is not condemning, but it is the Lord looking to you and saying, I don't want more. I don't want more. What I want is you. All of you. That means if if we feel like God is asking too much of us, 
it is likely because we're still holding on to some treasure, some sin, some idol of the heart, and and God will not be satisfied. Do you see? These are prosperous people. Okay, thousands of rams. God is not satisfied with us doing more and doing more with great personal sacrifice and, and bringing about effective social justice and doing our religious acts all the while clinging, gripping, holding on to that secret idol of the heart. He says, no, what I want is you. I want all of you. Are you willing to give him what he asks? Praise God that a broken spirit and a contrite heart he will not despise. Watts wrote, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love in Christ. So amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And so God looks to the Christians in Toronto and He says, okay, that. Are you willing to give me all? Are you willing to give me you? Are you willing to give me all that you are, all that you have? I don't want just parts of you. I don't want you clinging to little things over here. I want you to relax the grip, let it all go, and look at me and say, I am yours. Take me, Lord. It is perhaps something Christians need to do on a regular basis to reconnect with their God and recommit to their God that He owns all of their life and that He may freely have it. Have you given God your life in the first place? Some people hang around the fringes of churches. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're just here. You know about Christianity. You know about the Gospel. You've heard these things before, but you deep down have this sense, you know, I'm just too dirty. There's some things in my life I need to clean up first. I'm too sinful. I can't really do enough. I I can't act like everybody else. I can't be as good as those other people over there. But you see, the Gospel is this. It was it was kind of tucked in in verse 6. Verse 7, rather. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This is what they say in their whining, but don't we understand that God is the one who said, I gave the firstborn for your transgressions. I gave my son for the sin of your soul. You couldn't come up with a substitute for your sin but God did in our Lord Jesus Christ. So renounce all self-improvement. Renounce all religiosity. Renounce all good works and receive Jesus Christ. He, He is the only acceptance that anyone will ever have before God. And so your only hope is to be found in Him. And when you are found in Him, to do justice and to love steadfast love, and to walk humbly and carefully with your God. Let us pray. We have already sung this night, Lord, of our tendencies to neglect 
people, to love wealth, to manipulate and adopt the principles of the world, to live attempting to keep one foot of the, in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world. How we pray that you would forgive our sins, forgive our half-steps, forgive our faltering, failing, and grant a renewal in our own hearts that the Christians of Toronto would be known through the world not for their glory, but for your renown as people who walk humbly with their God, who do justice, and who love steadfast love. May we be so taken up with you, we have no time to look inward at ourselves. And may we remember that the yoke of the Master is light. You are not a burden to us, Lord. You are our Savior. We pray, give us grace. And put, put a jump in our spiritual step as we remember the Gospel, the One who rescued us out of our slavery. We pray in the name of Jesus, this Savior. Amen. The poor he is referring to are poor who are within the bounds of Israel. I don't hear any place where Israel is supposed to care for the poor among the Ammonites, for example. So my question is, as people of the New Covenant, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we do also have good reason to expect that God would have, have us take an interest in the poor. But do we have an obligation to the poor of our society or to the poor of our covenant? It's a great question, to which there are numerous large books written and a great debate even in Christendom right now. I would simply answer, I'll, I'll answer briefly, knowing that it could be a, a very extensive answer. I, I would see it as concentric circles that our first loyalty uh, in the New Covenant is to the New Covenant people. So bear one another's burdens. All the one another, the 40 or so one another commands in the New Testament um, are, are contextually to the immediate, to the family of God, to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So that first circle is my primary concern and my primary obligation. So it would be wrong of me then to omit my loyalty to the people of God in order to step to the second level, which would be to those people around me, those neighbors, friends, etc. So if I, if I am now exercising great um, works of mercy, for instance, in feeding the poor, but I'm neglecting the poor in, in the covenant community, I've got things backwards. So that, that would be my first thing, is to view these things concentric, as concentric circles, my first loyalty to the people of God, but by all means, my first loyalty is to the people of God. And then God who sends rain on the just and the unjust would expect us to do the same, not send rain, uh, but to extend grace and mercy outside of the covenant community. So I, I say that because I, I feel that sometimes, in, especially if you flatline Old Testament passages and remove them from the, the scope of the biblical narrative, and make it seem that this is now a responsibility carte blanche, um, I think you, you lose the New Testament focus. 
But that would be a good one for, for Joe to answer, too. We would, we, we would be very similar but slightly different, I think, on our conversations. Uh, this was, uh, it was just a, a passing comment that you made, but still I'd like you to expand on it because I know it's of particular interest to young people. You mentioned the, the word social justice or that phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, in light of doing justice, and you said that it was primarily uh, personally that that was intended and not uh, socially. I'd just like you to expand on that a bit and maybe, uh, maybe suggest why you were wary of that. Just a little more, thanks. Great. So sim it would be a very similar answer to the first in that in, in this passage, at least, in, in Micah 6, it's, he, he switches from the general congregational Israel to you, O oh man. And I think that's a very distinct and uh, uh, purposeful switch. So he's now saying, here, here is what it is. And, if, and, and then I think that does uh, come into the to our exercise of justice in the world is that as an individual, if I'm loyal and if I'm trustworthy and if I'm walking circumspectly with God as an individual in my workplace, in my home, in my family relationships, in my neighborhood, if that's who I am as a Christian, that will have profound effect on society. And, and I think we, we get this idea that unless we organize everybody and somehow do it with good graphics and advertisements, it doesn't really count. So what I want to suggest from here is that God is saying to the Christians in Toronto, be this person. Exercise, because the heart of verse 8 is really, be like me. <laughs> be the kind of person that I am. And as you do that, you will be me and you will be a light in the world. Does that answer? Thanks. Um, hi. Um, I Hi. think I know the answer for this, but I was wondering if you could just explain it. Um, what happens, you know, you, you said that you were to give our whole lives to, to God, right? Mm. God demands really our whole lives, not just offerings or sacrifices. Um, what happens when we, when as a Christian, you know, we, we fail to give God our whole lives and we, we're selfish? Like, how, how, how does God... How do we reconcile ourselves back with God? So one of the great themes throughout the whole Bible, the whole narrative of Scripture, is um, the awfulness of idolatry, of anything that replaces our attention to God. It's forbidden in the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. It's forbidden in the New Testament. Uh, my, my little children flee from idols. And we know as we look through Jesus' teaching, for instance, he's always addressing not just outward idols, but idols of the heart. So I think my understanding here, and the reason I tried to portray it this way, is the Lord is saying it's very easy to try and keep your idols and do religious things. We all know that. If you're, you know, if you're stealing money at work and throwing some of it in the offering plate on Sundays, <laughs> um, something's out of whack. And if you're you know, involved in a in sexual immorality and you know teaching Sunday school, something's out of whack. And what the Lord wants is He wants the whole person. So I believe God graciously will work in a Christian's life. He doesn't father us in the sense that many fathers work that just you know He jumps on everything right away all the time. 
but rather God will patiently allow things to run their course and then in his grace expose these things. And when those exposures come, when God graciously shows what we've been replacing him with, that's the moment a Christian needs to say, Lord, please, take it. I don't want to to worship that. I want to worship you. And so I think the ongoing experience of a Christian is to be constantly looking to God and saying, show me my idols, idols, show me my idolatry, and and, and get it out of my life and make me wholly yours. So... um, Havergal's hymn, take my, take my life. What do you have there? You know, take my money, take my time, take, take everything. What's she saying? She's just saying, take it all. And, and that's, that's a hymn we've got to sing over and over again as Christians. Hi. I don't really know anything about Micah. What can you tell me historically or who he was? Right, so Micah, uh, if you go to the... We know very little about him, actually. Um, Micah chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's about a, uh, if you tally up those three reigns of those three kings, it's about 56 years if my memory serves me right. So he likely prophesied for some 20 to 25 years. Moresheth is uh, a city to the south uh, east or west, southeast, I believe, of Jerusalem, some 20, 25 miles. So presumably, he would come in and give his prophecy uh, to Jerusalem. He also prophesied when the northern kingdom, Israel, was still there. He lived through the deportation of the northern kingdom. He he watched all of that take place, which um, in some ways, I'm just not sure enough to preach it. I think, though, that when he was saying Micah 6, 1 through 8, I think this was to Jerusalem after the northern kingdom. And that really adds punch to it in the sense of, Look at what happened to them. They turned their back on God, and they were hauled away. And this is going to happen to you too. In fact, at the time of his writing, the Assyrians are getting close. They're capturing little surrounding cities to Jerusalem. And so there's this huge political upheaval. And here comes this prophet, and he brings his message. We do know, um, and the reference escapes me, and I apologize. Uh, I think it's... uh, uh, it's either in Jeremiah or, um, I think it's in Jeremiah, maybe around chapter 8, where the, the, they speak about, remember, they were about to um, throw, I don't know, be mean to Jeremiah. <laughs> and they said, but remember Micah? And we listened to Micah, and God relented. So we do know that he, the prophet was heard, at least on some occasion. Hi. Hi. Um, you said that God has no covenant with Toronto or New York or Cairo, etc. Um, but I was just thinking of like what sort of relationship does he then have with mm. the cities? Because like in the Old Testament, um, the wickedness of the Canaanites grew so great that that was why God sent Israel in to destroy those nations. And you see in Roman Romans one, it talks about um, God is judging the the people because they know the truth but they've suppressed it so what would you call this then what is God's relationship to the city Mm -hmm. I think what you said is very good I think it's it's not a covenant that God makes with a people group per se so we don't have given to us a written covenant to the people of Cairo but we do see God in the old covenant um, giving very specific things that are going to happen in Egypt uh, which did happen in Egypt So God clearly is at work in the world, and where sin increases, God often brings 
judgment, right? But part of the wrath of God is the sin itself, right? Uh, Romans chapter 1. So as uh, the, the more I sin and the more that God gives me over to sin, that in itself is a kind of judgment. So that's in itself is God's wrath. So we're not able to, I would not be able to stand in a pulpit and say, for instance, um, definitively, the tsunami was God's judgment on every city that was destroyed and all the people in there. I couldn't say that because God has not revealed that. What I could say is it's a wonder to me that God doesn't tsunami the entire earth because the entire earth deserves it. So if God chooses in his sovereignty to allow those kinds of judgments to take place, the, the whole earth ought to wake up and listen. And yet when you go into the revelation of Jesus Christ, what you find is that the more these judgments take place and the greater intensity with which they come, the more the unbelieving earth says we curse God and we'd rather die. So judgments don't save. They express God's wrath and his holiness, but they're not what brings about the salvation, which was not your question, but I just kind of got lost in my own head. Sorry. If you're, uh, you, 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 right off the bat, you made it, a connection between this message and, and the covenant of grace uh, in the New Testament. If you were to preach this message, uh, firstly, in, based on the covenant uh, uh, of the old, uh, would the message be any different? Secondly, uh, on your second section where uh, Israelites were making a defense, and, and you're saying, you know, am I supposed to do all this? Is it next, next to impossible? But I, when I read it, I, I read it as a, I am doing all this. Mm-hmm. And it's almost reminding me of the Pharisees before uh, Jesus is saying, look, I'm doing everything externally, everything that's required of me. That's a great defense rather than saying, uh, you know, then that's, I, can't, I, don't seem to, I don't think it's a good defense to say, God, you, what you're asking next is impossible. You know, do you, you want me to do this? I think the, 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 if one was thinking that way, uh, then you're not making a good defense. I think that the defense is there mainly because, look, I am bringing my first offering. I am bringing everything externally that, that you, the law is required of. And then, but, but of course, the, the verse 8 is saying uh, everything is external. You can, do, I mean, you, can, you can do everything externally and, and be religious, but your heart is not there. And the, my, my verse, the NIV says, act justly rather than doing justice. So you can act one way or the other, but justly, that's an internal thing. So I, I read it that way. So I wanted to, if you can explain, if you, you are to, to preach this in the, in the Old Testament, uh, covenant of the Old, and then make a connection to the New, how would you do that? And secondly, uh, would you agree with me on my second point, that when sure. one is making a defense, yes, I am doing all this, and what more do you want? It's not, it's not saying, I'm not, I can't meet your requirement. Sure. I, mean, I think that's a stronger defense on the part of the Israelites. Yeah, so in answer to your second question first, I'd say no, I don't agree with you. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Thanks for being gracious and letting me say that. Uh, just in this sense, because I think, um, I think I might have a few years ago, but just having studied the, the book in its entirety, I think what, what really is taking place there is the people, are, um, the, the people that Micah is speaking to are prosperous, um, and they've lost focus, they've lost way, and they're, they're so committed to the externals. So part of what you're saying I agree with but the, the defense that they are making here is, is hyperbole. It's exaggeration. It's over the top. God never, never is asking anyone to um, sacrifice their child. Now, the commentators differ. 
Some would say this is them believing God is turning into Molech and he wants them to sacrifice, literally sacrifice their children. Other commentators would say, no, this is a reference to Abraham uh, being willing to sacrifice his son. I tend to think that's what the prophet had in mind. But again, they are looking to God and saying, why do you ask so much of us? How much, no typical Jew is going to be able to give 10,000 rivers of oil. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Nobody has that much oil. It's, it's massive overstatement. So in that sense, they're looking to God and saying, you're just asking too much. Uh, and your first question, I would say, it, it would not change fundamentally between old and new. I, I just think it's important when we're reading the old not to... Not to confuse two things. One, that something will happen to our city if we do or don't do something. And, and secondly, um, I forget. I had two, but I don't remember what the second one was. You get to close it out. Great. Yeah. Um, I struggle with understanding what humbleness looks like. Can you kind of just walk humbly with your God? What does that look like to you, or can you expand a little bit more? Well, if you want humility, look at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> humility, uh, to walk humbly, it really, and I don't, I don't mean to pick apart English translations, but it was interesting to study the word and how it's used. It's really that, that idea of circumspectly more than humbly. So in this passage, the idea is walking carefully with God, being mindful of God, giving God first place in everything. But obviously, humility is a huge thing. Jesus told us uh, to, to be the least of all. P Peter tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. And I would say that humility is, in essence, um, learning to not think about you and to think about God. And the more your thoughts are on him and his ways, and the less you think about yourself, the more you will walk in humility with him. All right. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.